Today's guest, Immortal Technique. What really drew me as a magnet to this subject, I said, this is something you're not allowed to talk about. People are coming into the movement now, this epiphany, oh my God, there's a genocide narrative that they've constructed to make themselves be the victim and the occupier at the same time, a propaganda machine that exists behind it. Judaism and Zionism were on opposing sides of each other from the foundation of Zionism. And getting all our information from people like you, individuals on social media that are unafraid to show these things because NBC, ABC, and Fox won't. And what I do is represent the other side of it, the side that you don't want on TV. You have to go to Palestinians who are showing you the images coming out of Gaza, while at the same time, the occupation is killing them at record rates. It's not just what they did to us, but it's what they made us do to each other. They made us fight over breadcrumbs. And I can't imagine what the people of Gaza are going through, having to snatch bread from each other to survive. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gaza Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok. Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you invaded Gaza and the land rejected you with a foot fungus. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes, an additional podcast called the Patreon Pod. It's a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine Pod. All right, guys. So like last week, um, we're doing another Knafa giveaway from Knafa Queens, the amazing ladies over at Knafa Queens. So in order to get your Knafa, you have to follow us on YouTube, leave a comment in the YouTube episode having something to do with Knafa and make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Palestine pod. We will select a winner from one of the YouTube comments and send you guys Knafa anywhere in the continental U.S. Today's guest is rapper and activist Immortal Technique. Tech, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me on the program. You have been an ally for Palestinian liberation for a very long time. Can you tell us how did you learn about Palestine and, and how did you get connected to this cause? And why did you feel it was so important to speak up about Palestine? Hmm. Well, first and foremost, thank you again very much for having me on the program. I think very rarely people come to an epiphany. I think that's actually a fallacy. There are very few epiphanies in life. I think most of it is a process of understanding and learning. But sometimes people are shocked into reality. And I think that's what's happening now. I think that's why you see so many stark differences between how people are coming into the movement now rushing in because of this epiphany that, oh my God, there's a genocide and the institutions that we're expecting to stop it aren't stopping it. And now we've realized that we're asking them to be something that they've never been and do something that they've never done. So my position came very kind of slowly, a very tortoise and the hare, you know, understanding, but definitely not one 
rooted in, in a perceived bias from the beginning. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people interpret facts to support their own conclusions when it comes to dealing with world issues and with history that they feel uncomfortable with, right? So I guess as a young person, I began to start learning about occupations. I learned about military history. My father was in the Peruvian military, so he was very adamant about me understanding history and having a full grasp of things. You know, so during the aftermath of 9-11, when we went to Afghanistan or this country did, I was fully aware of the fact that the British Empire failed there, that Alexander the Great failed there, that these prime examples of people that have these hundreds of years of resistance or thousands of years of resistance. And then I became aware of the Palestinian cause. I understood very slowly the Napka. And one of the most interesting things that I understood about it was reading the writings of the people who founded Israel. So I always tell people the difficulty with me having an argument with a Zionist person is that they typically come away with two impressions of you, Lara. Either that you are a bigot or that you're a very well-read, very well-educated bigot. And my response to that is simply, your argument is not with me. It's with Ben-Gurion and all of the other founders of Israel, because unlike you, they weren't ashamed to say that they were going to commit ethnic cleansing, even if you don't take his official statements, but you read, I ask your audience, if you have spare time, read his letters to his son. When Ben-Gurion sends these letters to his son that are now well-documented, he talks about having to forcibly remove hundreds of thousands of people, and how are we going to do that? And this is a, a another issue that we have in the, the quote-unquote founding of the state of Israel. So I, I remind people that to me, sometimes the fight that we have is not against people who are opposed to us, but people who are opposed against themselves, against their own principles. And that's what they're really fighting against. And they have this narrative that they've constructed to make themselves be the victim and the occupier at the same time, which is unique in the world, but not unique that we've never seen it before but unique in the sense that there is a, a very, very well-constructed propaganda machine that exists behind it. And that's, I think, more than anything, what really drew me as a magnet to this subject. I said, wait a minute, this is something you're not allowed to talk about. This is something that the moment you bring it up, it gets brought into a completely different dimension of understanding. It's not even in the same frame as the Iraq and Afghanistan war. This is you know, now involved with China, Russia, you know, it, it, it's much more of a, a world player. And I felt that one of the other things I, I did in, in understanding this movement was to understand the history of Zionism. And people always credit Theodore Herzl with being the founder of Zionism. But I think your audience should read a book called Rome and Jerusalem by Moses Hess. That is actually the inspiration for Theodore Herzl. And Moses Hess is a very important person because he actually introduced Engels and Marx to each other before they wrote the Communist Manifesto. Judaism and Zionism were on opposing sides of each other from the foundation of Zionism, and that Zionism was majorly founded by people who were secular and didn't even believe in God. So these are important things to take into account when you're understanding the early aspect of it. And then you get into very, very complex international, what Shakespeare said, that politics creates strange bedfellows. So now you see Indians on TikTok supporting Israel. How did that happen? But then that's part of a much larger conversation. So I would say that my, my 
my understanding of the movement came very slowly and over years of having not just Palestinian friends, but knowing people who were raised in Israel who had a completely different narrative on their hand and saying, well, wow, what, you really believe that? And then kind of juxtaposing those two things. Also being in New York, I've known Jewish people that don't support the state of Israel for most of my life. It's not something that's automatic here. So I, I think that's, that's a necessity to bring up when, when opening the conversation. You couldn't be more spot on. Early Zionists explicitly referred to themselves as colonialists. They were writing love letters to Cecil Rhodes for help on colonizing. And I love what you're saying. It's like the argument is not with us. It's with Herzl and the sun, right? They're not indigenous. Okay, thank you so much. <laughs> You spoke about the nature of propaganda and disinformation when it comes to the question of Palestine. And I want to go back to one of your songs that had a huge impact on me, and it deals with the media. Mm. And I was looking at the lyrics, and it's like this song could have been written today for this exact moment but of course i don't know exactly when you wrote it maybe like 20 years ago now you're referring to the fourth branch i am yeah i wrote that in uh 2001 and 2002. it's one of those songs that took a little bit longer to write than some of the other ones but it was in direct response to what i saw happen after 9 11 which is an abandonment of logic and reason you really had people who believed that there was nothing else to it except what our government told us there was. And for people who will automatically say, oh, okay, I got to tune out. This guy is one of those 9-11 conspiracy theorists. No, I, I think the difference is my conspiracy theories, ladies and gentlemen, to tell your audience back in 2003 on the album that the sister's referring to was one, that the Iraq war was based on lies. People didn't know that back then. They thought this guy really had weapons of mass destruction. He didn't. And Republicans were pushing that lie for 15 years. They didn't give up. Yeah. And now, all of a sudden, they've reinvented themselves, hiding behind Trump's skirt as if they were always anti-war. And that's actually not the case. So I think that when you come to these kind of recognitions and you, you encapsulate them inside music, I try my hardest to make it timeless in the sense to do exactly what you said, to be able to play it now. So if I say, flow like the blood of Abraham through the Jews and the Arabs, broken apart like a woman's heart and abused in a marriage, and we say, the massacres in Janine, the innocent screams, U.S. manufactured missiles and M16s, we're not just talking about then, we're talking about now. So when I started making the music that I made, I always reminded people, I'm not just rapping about the past. If you think that I'm rapping about slavery because we're talking about the past, no, I'm talking about the future and what we'll be dealing with then. Revolutionary Volume 1, if you look at the actual art cover, there are dead cops and there's a military guy on the back. Why? People don't always ask me. I said, well, what do you think happens in a civil war in the United States? One half of the military fight the Navy, fights the Marine, Army fights the Coast Guard, this police force will fight this group of militia. That's the nature of it. It is utter lawlessness and a breakdown of every aspect of civility. And I think that when we discuss the propaganda apparatus, Israel and what's going on now can't exist without that. And to bring it back to 9-11, and I'll just, I will stop there in terms of this question. 
People criticized President George Bush because he didn't do anything for 47 minutes in a country that has the diameter of the moon, 3,000 miles across, and for 47 minutes, he did nothing but pretend to read a book to children while the country was under attack and people were jumping out of buildings and dying. And yet I've heard nothing about Netanyahu, who did nothing for six hours in a country the size of New Jersey. So what dawned on me is to say, okay, rather than just give wild conspiracy theories, let's start marking off the things that aren't true. What isn't true is that the media exists to keep us informed. That's not true. The media exists because rich people are stupid and they can't give their opinion in a, in a very creative and kind of broken down way. So what do they do? They hire these pundits and the right-wing YouTube kind of community to express what they would like to express in a way that's pre-digested for an audience. And therefore, they have become Napoleon. And by that, I mean that a lot of people don't remember that Napoleon used to have a newspaper that he was the editor of, and he wrote the articles in there. So when he talked about his victories, he would say, Napoleon runs across the field, waving his sword bravely. And now we would look back and say, what a rampant egomaniac, what a psychopath. But that's exactly what's going on. Oh, this guy destroys liberal first-year students, and they, they feel like they've accomplished something. But really, they're just expressing the ideas of rich people who are incapable of having them materialized in that fashion. And what I do with the music is represent the other side of it, the side that you don't want on TV, the side that you refuse to show me. Because you've shown me dead people in the Ukraine, but you refuse to show me dead people in Iraq and Gaza. So we're getting all our information from people like you and individuals on social media that are unafraid to show these things because NBC, ABC, and Fox won't. So if I'm correct, you released Revolutionary Volume 1 on September 18th, 2001, which is yeah. one week after 9-11. What was that year like for you? And what patterns do you notice repeating themselves in 2023? Like the intelligence failures, using instances to commit atrocities, lies about official stories, sequestering evidence, etc. Well, when people first started comparing what happened on October 7th to other things, I thought 9-11 was a terrible comparison. But now I think it's very fitting. The other ones that they came up with, likening Hamas and the Gazans to ISIS, was ridiculous because I know that those people are ideologically opposed and they've actually had like real problems with each other where they've tried to kill other members of each organization. So to me, I thought that was always a fraud and a lie. But I think the 9-11 comparison stands, and I'll explain why. Because after 9-11, what we had was the international empathy of the world. Every single country was like, how horrible. I've been to New York. I've seen those towers. That's disgusting that someone had to throw themselves out. A person that I wasn't necessarily friends with, but I knew this person, they were a friend of a friend. She was walking on her way to work and she was hit by burning jet fuel and falling metal debris. And she lived for two days in a hospital and then she succumbed to her injuries and died. People were horrified by that. You had the solidarity of the world. And then you took that good feeling and you rolled it up in a proverbial blunt with the bones of a million people from Iraq and over 300,000 people from Afghanistan, and you smoked all the credibility you had in the world up. And now nobody trusts you, nobody respects you, and the only Arab countries that you have connections to are the people that you've armed to the teeth because you've convinced them that they can only get their salvation through you. 
And the other point is that now, October, after October 7th, you had a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world that said, oh man, this is fucking terrible. How could this happen? Even though they were aware that it was part of a much larger conflict that lasted 75 years, there were still people that were horrified by that. And now the exact same thing has happened. Not just Israel, but the United States have isolated themselves around the world. I mean, when I say the world, I mean all over Asia, Africa, Latin America. I mean, there isn't a country where people respect what these actions are. But I remind your audience, don't fall for the anti-Semitic trope that Israel is behind pulling the strings on the United States. No. The, the Israelis are a colony of America, just like they wanted to colonize somewhere else. And they don't do anything without Joe Biden say so. Remember the good cop, bad cop philosophy that exists in the United States. And for those people who don't know it, the younger people in your audience, one cop pretends to be your friend and empathetic to your cause, and the other one screams and threatens you. And this is what's going on, right? In many senses, when Israel says, oh, I want a regional conflict, and the United States says, no, I don't, that's actually a reversal of what is going on. The United States is looking for a regional conflict with the allies of Iran. That's why I believe in its mind, it's personally responsible for targeting Hamas, but it can't do it. So it has to have the Israelis do it for it. Now, this plays directly into the hands of what Israel wants for its own foreign policy. They happen to be aligned as allies. But make no mistake, if they wanted it to stop, they could. And I'll tell you why. Because there's only been two presidents that ever halted Israeli settlements. One was Eisenhower, and the other one was George Bush Sr. A lot of people don't know that. He threatened the Israeli government and said, we'll cut off all your funding. That, that $4 billion a year, you're not getting any of that this year. And they suspended those settlements for over a year. Now, that's important to know. Why? Because who ran against George Bush Sr. the next year. Well, he ran against two Christian Zionists. One was a man called Ross Perot that kind of took an entire state of Texas away from George Bush that he had in the bag that would have got him the victory. And the other Christian Zionist that he ran against was the man who would become president, Mr. Bill Clinton. So I think that when we talk about like the these instances where people want to like understand things better, I remind people, the United States uses Israel for things that it can't do. Now, I've made this example before, but I'll make it on your program. When we were supporting, we as the United States were supporting Iraq against Iran, documents that were recently revealed showed that President Reagan didn't actually want Iraq to win. He wanted them to hurt each other so that they wouldn't become a dominant force in the region. But what happened is as a consequence of Iraq aligning itself with America and NATO at the time, it made them capable of purchasing a nuclear reactor from France. And when they purchased the nuclear reactor, the United States became very, very, I don't say afraid because these people aren't afraid of anything except their own shadow, but the reality is that they became very concerned with that. And so they gave Israel the coordinates. And I invite your audience to say, is this really true? Please look it up for yourself. And it was Israel that blew up Iraq's nuclear reactor, but it was with the help of the United States. It was with the okay of the United States. And I'll bring it all the way back to Gaza. Why did they delay their ground invasion? Because they needed more time to prepare? Because they needed to reload their weapons? No, because they needed American mercenaries to guide them through Gaza. 
That's 100% true. They needed troops that were trained in something your audience should be familiar with called CQC, which is close quarter combat. And that's the idea of not just kicking in doors. Now you're using a sonar device to find out if there's an IED on the door. Because in Iraq, these troops were kicking in doors and having their legs blown off by a booby trap. Or they were trying to open, go through a window, and all of a sudden their hand is gone because there's a grenade there. I think the numbers that the IDF has suffered in terms of casualties are obviously extremely underreported. But it's also extremely underreported that America has bases inside of Israel. So while it may have a few Zionists in power, they exist to give cover for what they really want there. Because Israel doesn't have a single base in the United States. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of their nuclear weapons were actually ours as a first strike capability against other people. And what makes this more complicated for the Arab world, I think, is that now Jordan, Saudi, and the UAE have to justify to the rest of the Arab world why you're in an alliance with the United States and Israel. Because you can't be in an alliance with the United States and not be in an alliance with Israel. If Iran attacks a carrier and Israel responds to Iran, who's going to fight with you? The Saudis, the UAE, and others. Who's going to fight on the other side? Well, anyone else who's backed by Russia, the Houthis, right, will probably have someone in Central Asia attack as well. And I think that this is what the United States was looking for earlier, a regional conflict where it can come out on top. The post-9-11 world basically kicked Russia out of like the weapons market in the Middle East and handed the entire thing over to the United States. And simply put, you know, we're dealing with the aftermath of that reality. So 9-11 was just a, a giant scope of things. But even now, the people in Gaza were witness to that post-9-11 world in which those American mercenaries used the training that they did, those wars that began post 9-11, and used those tactics specifically in Gaza, which is an urban war zone. And obviously, it's an urban war zone where you're fighting against a civilian population of people. You're not really killing the Hamas fighters. And the point was made on another show, and I'll just reiterate it, even if they managed to move every single human being out of the physical space that they call Gaza, they wouldn't kill Hamas. They wouldn't kill the Gazans. Those people would still fight for what they believe is theirs, and they would still exist in that way. You know, and I think that reality escapes people, and that's why they think they can win an ideological war. You, you can't. And more than that, I think that for the resistance in Gaza, the, the rules of guerrilla warfare apply. The empire needs a total victory. The rebellion just needs to survive to claim victory. If Gazans are still there next year, that's a victory for them. The fact that any of them are still alive now, it's a victory for them. Now it's a very, very hard fought victory. And it's a, a bloody, disgusting, horrific price to pay. The result of that price though, is that the world is finally here at the front door of Palestine. And it has, some of them have been there for a long time. We talked about yesterday, we talked about South Africa and other countries coming full circle to an acknowledgement of genocide. But that is something that's been happening for 75 years, right? People talk about the sexual assaults that took place on October 7th. And my response is, wow, let's have a conversation about them. Let's open up that Pandora's box because I want to know how many women were raped by the IDF in that 75-year occupation. Please don't tell me the number is zero. 
because since we want to talk about sexual assault openly and freely, then let's have that open conversation, which I don't think you guys really want to have on the Zionist side, because then it exposes the idea that this world that's governed by supposedly religious laws isn't godly in any sense of the word. And for me, that was the aftermath of 9-11, existing in that society, existing in that world, coming to terms with everything that happened and kind of saying to myself, you know what, if I'm going to be an artist that stands for the people, I have to talk about things that are uncomfortable. I have to ruffle feathers. I have to make people listen to something that they may not, because they're going to have to confront narratives about what they believe. And at some point, so will I. I mean, I'm, I'm never shy about saying, hey, I was... I learned something new today. or I was educated about things. In the fourth branch, you say, trapped in a ghetto region like a Palestinian kid where nobody gives a fuck whether you die or you live. I'm trying to give the truth and I know the price is my life. <clears throat> so that resonates with what you just said, where you know that if you're trying to send a message and be speaking to the people that you have to talk about the things that matter. You know, I'm listening to you talk and I, I have so many things I want to say, but one thing that I think is so important to remember is that part of the problem is people are just not willing to understand who Palestinians are, what we've been through, what our grievances are. Why is it that we're upset? What are we upset about? Is it something that if you had endured it, you too would be upset? Mm. Is our reaction to occupation a normal human reaction? Is it something that anybody in our place would, you know, react in the same way? And I think what this moment has done, and I keep hearing this phrase over and over, is this notion that the veil has been lifted, mm. that the propaganda now, it's not working anymore the way that it used to. And yet we still see the same techniques, you know, the, 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 the mainstream media journalists that are embedded with the occupation in Gaza. Meanwhile, at the same time, the occupation is banning foreign correspondents from being in Gaza. So you actually, like you said, you don't see Gaza if you turn on the mainstream media. And so you have to go elsewhere. You have to go to Palestinians who are showing you the images coming out of Gaza, while at the same time, the occupation is killing them at record rates. Till now, they've killed 106 Palestinian journalists in Gaza in a time span of two and a half months. And so the risk, the danger in even just trying to get our story out is so pervasive. But the, the reality is, is that is the case because of how revealing our story is and how touching it is and how clear it is once you know what it is that it the whole thing falls apart the whole propaganda narrative falls apart if you are able to actually just see and understand and hear from us there isn't really anything left from the propaganda that they've constructed that they've maintained that they have meticulously maintained and managed to keep in place for decades and so i want to get your thoughts on that this notion that the veil has been lifted and we cannot go back to a status quo of permanent occupation of an apartheid regime from the river to the sea and that this is a breaking point there is no going back from this do you feel that that's true or do you feel like unfortunately when the dust settles that we are going to be headed towards something much worse i think that a lot of people thought that was what the arab spring was going to be and look at what we ended up because of that also what i was talking about before is that the united states had a coordinated campaign of media after october 7th including several things that became unprovable 
right? One was obviously the, the beheading of children, the 40 babies that I'm not saying that nobody died, but the reality is that that specific thing didn't happen. And then the president lied on national television and told people that he saw them. But the other trope that I was speaking before we got cut off is this idea that nobody wants the Palestinian people. That's what's being implied. The idea, oh, nobody wants you, right? Wait a minute. It's not that nobody wants you. It's the idea that they don't want you to live in a desert that's not your home. They want you to live in Gaza where you belong. Also, the idea that nobody wants you, well, let's have a discussion about who wanted Jewish people after World War II. Are you putting yourself in the same category as them? So I think that there will be a reawakening as to how much it'll impact. That depends on how hard the people that are in your position can keep riding and how long you can keep it going. Because I honestly believe that if this type of podcast and this type of social media that you guys are doing now was around during the Iraq war, they couldn't have been able to conduct it in the same way. I think the advent of social media and the idea that we can see these things, right? I, I'm, I even follow them, they follow me back. I repost some of the, the, the Palestinian journalist stuff. That is shocking to people. And I'll tell you why, sister, I've seen people die before. I've been involved in a lot of violence in my life. I've seen terrible things. I've had to get my hands dirty. I've done things that I regret. I've seen people get shot in front of me. And I was still, still like just shocked at seeing the amount of dead children. That took some time to process. And it's even if, if it's affected me, I can't imagine how it's affected yourself and other Palestinians that have to look at that and say, those are my people, those are my children, those little kids, how could they do this? And to go back to the introduction, we're asking the UN to be something it's not, it's not that. It is simply an arm of imperialism to normalize things, which brings us to another difficult discussion. The normalization brings up the argument of reform versus revolutionary. And that is where the fight really is in the internal community to be pro-Palestinian. I am not a reformer. Um, I, I think that the ideology has to be challenged on every level. And without that, then what are you fighting for, right? And to me, if I look at like the modern era and what's gonna be different, yeah, there is things that are gonna be different. For example, there's not gonna be the normalization that was about to happen. That was huge. This is impossible. And I I'll go even farther to say that while we may look at the governments of Saudi Arabia and Jordan and the UAE as a total authoritarian system that has a king in charge, a, a, a parliamentary system that's just for show, they still can't normalize with Israel now. They're stuck in this position where they're like, well, what do we do? That's why none of those countries joined Operation Prosperity Guardian. They were terrified of the consequences, not from Yemen, but from their own people. That's the part they left out of those news reports. They're not, they're, they're scared of Yemen because it's honestly a spiked ball, right? The more you squeeze on it, the more you hurt yourself. That's what they've set up there. And even though it's a famine-starved country when people say, oh, why hasn't Israel or America attacked there? Well, because even though it's a famine-starved country, it's packed with weapons. And I don't mean just AK-47s. We're talking about surface-to-air missiles. We're talking about just about anything that you could potentially find in an Iranian or a Russian military base. And now, since the end of the war, 
they have very little intel about what's coming to the country. So they could really be fighting against a force that's much stronger than them. So I feel like they're looking for trying to find a diplomatic solution to that, but I don't think they're going to find it. I think that they're just biding their time and finding a way to attack Yemen, but yet somehow relieve the responsibility on the Arab countries that would be involved in the logistical aspects of that fight, because they're not going to be in the physical one to save face in the same way that Israel did participate in the Iraq war logistically. But and they did participate in our helping the Mujahideen fighters during the USSR invasion in Afghanistan to get weapons, but they couldn't be part of the invasion force in Iraq because it just wouldn't. The America's smart about their optics; it, it wouldn't look right. It wouldn't be acceptable to the rest of the world. But that veil, I think, is permanently lifted. I think the veil of American exceptionalism is permanently lifted. And I think what the other veil that's rising now is the veil that I talked about in the very beginning. The idea that that Palestinian people are starting to have and starting to realize, like The Godfather. You guys remember The Godfather, that movie, when he's sitting there talking to Tom Hagen, and it's Marlon Brando and Robert Duvall, and he says to him, you know what, should these guys have clean records? And he says to him, just like this, and this is perfectly positioned to what's going on now. He says, no. Barzini's a man who'll know that without being told. And Robert Duvall says, you mean Tatalia? And he said, no, Tatalia's a pimp. He could have never outfought Santino, but I didn't know now that it was Barzini the whole time. And you have to understand something. I tell all my Palestinian friends, and they're waking up to this. Israel can't do nothing to you without the Americans say so. It couldn't even invade Gaza without them saying so. Why? Because it took lessons from the Lebanon war in 2006. Those people got their asses kicked because they were doing CQC with people who had trained CQC for 10, 15 years already, 20, 30 years. Now, maybe Israel's army was in a position where they would be that functional back in the 60s and 70s. But another bunch of experts that I've seen pointed out some very interesting things that maybe a couple of decades ago, they were pulled off conventional duty. And all they've been doing is being police officers and breaking the arms of children in the West Bank and torturing people in Gaza. You're not actually a fighting force anymore. And therefore, without the airstrikes, this wouldn't look like what it looks like now. It would look like the Ukraine, a stalemate, without, those air, without the air power above it. That's what NATO and America took away from the Ukraine. If Russia had its airstrikes to be able to attack what like the six planes that Ukraine has in its air force, this war would be over tomorrow. It would look like that. But because of the air power, because of that strength, that's actually what gives Israel the ability to do these things. So without the empire, they are not the, 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 the fifth strongest army in the world. No, they're not. They're a group of people that have been lied to for their entire existence and unfortunately, they're set up like a crash test dummy on the front line of World War III because Americans don't actually care what happens to them. And if you discover Christian, like far-right Christian ideology, they actually believe that all those people should be in that place because that their destruction leads to the return of the Messiah. That's insane, but that's what they really believe. These are the same people that spend billions of dollars influencing one half of the American political structure in the same way that they are really nutcases who think that destroying Al-Aqsa Mosque will somehow bring about the return of the Messiah. 
And all that's going to happen is create a regional nuclear war that will not stop for how long? I don't know. But you cannot destroy Al-Aqsa. You can't pick it apart like London Bridge and put it in Lake Havasu. I, I rarely make personal criticisms about other people. But the thing I heard from Hamza Youssef and from some of the other scholars in the UAE about creating a separate site on the on Al-Aqsa or partially unearthing it is absolute nonsense. And I want to tell those people, what are you even thinking? What, what influencer did they send there to tell you what to do? Because normalization was not the idea of Mohammed bin Salman. It was the idea of the United States that said, no, you guys are all going to sit in a room and play nice because I said so. And that's the bottom line. That's the part that I think Gazans and, and Palestinian people have awakened to. They've seen, oh, no, Tatalia is a pimp. These people, they're not as tough as they think they are. They lied about everything. They lied about how badly uh, uh, they're doing in Gaza. They lied about the fact that they don't even take care of their soldiers. And they lied about the fact that without the United States to resupply them, right, by bypassing Congress, that's exactly what Biden just did. He resupplied all of their munitions. They're out of bombs without the United States. Listen, even Russia is buying bombs from North Korea, right? It's because they need to retain some emergency munitions for themselves and not overextend. In this case, you have an interesting dichotomy, which is that the United States supplies and helps them. And Israel does things that it's incapable of. And the only likeness I can provide around the world is kind of the strange relationship that North Korea and China, right? North Korea can do things that China can't do. China doesn't go around threatening Japan, although it would like to. But North Korea is the one that's, oh, I'll launch a nuke at you people. I'll blow up your whole, oh, Jesus, this guy's a lunatic. And then you think, oh, man, the Chinese are really holding him back. No, they're probably sitting in the room like, <laughs> you see? I like that one. We can all think he's a maniac and a lunatic for all these things, but Xi Jinping is a statesman, regardless of whether people think he's a dictator. He couldn't do that, right? Joe Biden couldn't quote Amalek. He couldn't say, hey, we have to kick all these people out. But he told Bibi in secret, probably, hey, I want every ally of Iran gone. We hate Iran more than you do. We hated Iran since way back in the day, before you even people got involved. We wanted that for ourselves. That was a possession of the British Empire. And when the British Empire got kicked out of the colonial business, we took it over after World War II. We took over all their assets. During Sykes-Pico, the Middle East was divided. This is the great awakening that I think people are really coming to. They're following the money. And they're realizing that most of the money that comes to Israel doesn't actually come from Jewish organizations in America. It comes from Christian Zionist organizations in the United States. Picking up on the point about Iran and Israel doing the dirty work for the United States, I don't know if you saw, but two days ago, Naftali Bennett wrote an op-ed that was entitled, The U.S. and Israel Need to Take Iran On Directly. Make the Ayatollahs Pay for Sowing Chaos Through Their Hamas, Hezbollah, and Houthi Proxies. It sounds like something that one of the Joint Chief of Staff would say. And, you know, if, if I can say anything about Naftali, is that he's never going to be a real boy. His Pinocchio lies have, have made him a puppet forever. He, that's exactly what he is. He is a puppet, and he is a mouthpiece, not just of the IDF, but he's actually a mouthpiece of American imperialism because he's not reiterating Israeli talking points there. That's an American military 
hard right talking point. Oh, we're going to take on Iran. Actually, without the United States' help, Israel wouldn't last long against Iran without a non-nuclear fight on its own. That's a very different war. Those both countries have a gigantic air force. One of them has 600,000 suicide drones, and the other one can barely get its army together. I don't think it would be a fight the way people think it would be. But with the United States involved, oh, that's a completely different story. Iran also represents something very important for the United States. It represents the link between Russia and China, right? It represents the access that puts them both together. Before this started, and what I will go back to your first, the, the previous question about what else will people be awakened with? Last year, sister, Israel enjoyed the allyship of the United States. It enjoyed a complicated but still functional relationship with Russia and it enjoyed investment from China. Now what has happened? It only has the United States as an ally. It is internationally isolated. China has taken it off every single map that it has, and it's also banned Israeli military systems and weapons products because they think that they could be secretly given to them by the United States with spyware equipment. It's banned everything. And now Russia has said, oh, okay, cool. This is the game you want to fuck around and play? fine, you're not getting any more favoritism from us. And now it's turned into a, oh, you're an extension of the United States. Yeah, we see exactly what you are. And that has become more evident and more obvious to people. Was it Judea that controlled Rome? Or was it Rome that told Pontius Pilate, we don't want any more drama down there. So I want you to crucify every person that starts anything. Yeah. We all read history, and who is Tiberius Drusus? You ask anybody in the street, nobody knows who he is. But you ask any kid in the hood or any learned man, who is Yeshua ben Yosef, or as you know him, Jesus Christ. And that's how I know that the people of Palestine will prevail, they will survive, and they will outlast the imperial powers. Because Rome is gone. Those people are still there. So one day, trust me, there will be a reckoning, and there will be a return. I think it's the job of every artist and every individual that's in your position to make where they are as uncomfortable as possible. See, if I come into a room and I don't like somebody, I don't feel uncomfortable. You feel uncomfortable. And if you don't, then you're about to, right? Like I tell my mother when I go outside, oh, be careful. I say, no, 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 don't be worried about me. You worry about the people that run into me. I'm not worried about them, okay? And I think at that point, we have to constantly remind ourselves we have that power and that power is in our voice to tell people what's going on. And even though the people are moving towards enlightenment, how does that affect the United States? Well, you've got Genocide Joe and then you've got Tel Aviv Trump. Neither one of them care about the Palestinian people. As a matter of fact, Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Dr. Moab on Afghanistan Right? At, at the same time that this was going on where he was defeating ISIS, what were we doing at that time? We were hiring splinter cells of Al-Qaeda and ISIS to still try to fight against Assad in, in Syria, which has always blew my mind. Like that brings us full circle back to 9-11. Wait a minute, Al-Qaeda was the worst enemy that the United States ever had. And now they, they, we're, they're our friends and we want to overthrow Syria with them? Who? Who remembers what happened last week? This was my question. Like, who, who remember? I'm raising my question, and the entire United States is the classroom. And I'm like, wait, who remembers what happened last week? 
when they blew that shit, and now you want them, now they're our friends. And now, uh, wait, wait, and the Kurds were our friends before, but now they're not, and we're going to sell them out to the Turks, and they're all going to die. Okay, I get it now. We're America, and we only kill our friends. There you go. So Israel should be really worried, because if you were the United States ally, dude, you're on the chopping block, too. They're putting you on front street like a crash test dummy, like I said before, because you're on the front lines of World War III, and you're getting hit so the United States doesn't. I want to get your take on something. If you have like time for one more question, I have a few. I got a few more questions. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, sure, sure. <laughs> well, I don't know because I don't. We've already gone for like an hour and a half and, and sure, ten minutes. I, I, and got I'm another, I got another. I got another twenty minutes. Okay, cool. Okay, I got one more question. Michael has like eighty-five more questions. So we'll just... <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting to talk to you my whole life. Okay, come on. <laughs> you think I'm gonna let you go right now? Come on. So, <laughs> Always. Michael, what did you want to ask me? I've always learned so much from you. Thank you so, so much for always being such a wealth of knowledge and a resource for the people. Okay, one more question, and then I will let you go. On the track, Dominant Species, you say, <laughs> even the dead people in my family tell me they are proud of me. A lot of what I do is guided by ancestral spirits. Some of my family escaped the Holocaust. Some of them didn't. And it's why I do everything in my power to speak out about the Holocaust happening in Palestine right now and to honor the memories of both the ones who made it and the ones who didn't. Can you talk about how your ancestors guided your path and how listening to them is crucial to developing into your full potential? I met Simon Wiesenthal. He came to my school. And I also uh, I read a book called Night by Eli Wiesel as a little kid, probably too young to read the book. Very sorry to hear what happened to your family, Michael. And one of the worst things I heard hearing and reading those books was the sentiment from the Jewish people that said, it's not just what they did to us, but it's what they made us do to each other. They made us fight over breadcrumbs. They made us kill a family member to get a piece of soup, right? They, they tied us together. And if one person killed the other one, then we were given a jacket and they weren't. And I can't imagine what the people of Gaza are going through, having to snatch bread from each other to survive and doing these horrible things. So I know that to me, when I look at the resilient spirit of a people and I know, okay, my ancestors would be proud of me. I'm not saying that I close my eyes and all of a sudden they're all surrounding me like Black Panther, right? But I, I feel like if they saw what I was doing, some of them would be happy with me. Now, the other part that I'm gonna say is maybe some of them wouldn't. I was born in Peru, and everyone associates Peru with cocaine, the Amazon, Machu Picchu, and now ayahuasca. And I'm going to speak about this very briefly because I think it relates to how it does now and the question that you asked, Michael. A lot of people take ayahuasca because they think they want to quit smoking or some dumb shit or, you know what I mean? They take it as a recreational drug. It's not a recreational drug. You have to be guided into that by a shaman, right? Not some random person from Boston who's decided to move down to the Amazon and live there for two years. You have to be guided by a person who understands the spiritual connection that you have to your people. Because how about this, Michael? You're going to run into one of your ancestors that is not a positive person. You're going to run into one of your ancestors that took the life of people. You're going to run into one of your ancestors that was a mass murderer. How about this? I have Spaniard ancestors that were conquistadors, colonizers, rapists, murderers. Those people committed some of the worst atrocities in humanity. When you take ayahuasca, you can't just be prepared to see grandma that you've been missing your whole fucking life. You got to be prepared to see those motherfuckers too. 
and those people that remind you of the wicked things that you've done. And what I mean by that is every single person that's watching this show, you all have some kind of dark secret. It's not on the surface. It's not something you're going to bring up right now immediately and say, Bing, I remember that. No, but tonight you'll remember it. Tonight you'll think about some of the things that you've done wrong in your life and you'll think, oh, wow, who writes these wrongs? Who actually is karma? Is there karma? Is this a construct that I've invented as a person to make myself feel better and think that there's some balance to the world when there really isn't, right? That's the, that's the hard question that we have to ask ourselves. It is, is it only us that create this, this like fantasy for ourselves or is it someone else's construct that we live in? I think for me personally, I know that irrespective of whether I've met one of my ancestors that was a wicked person, I would be able to tell them and say, yeah, you know what? I did bad things. I robbed people. I was not a very nice person when I was younger. And I learned from my mistakes. And now it's time for your spirit to learn. Your spirit to learn from your mistakes. And maybe I need to correct something that you did back in the day. Maybe I need to do what I do because you did so many things that were wrong back in the day. By and large, I do feel that if my ancestors could see what I'm doing, that they would be proud of me, but they wouldn't understand some stuff. You know, like indigenous people, they don't understand the idea of, oh, you want me to build you a yurt and a teepee? Okay, I'll build you one. And now every time you hunt, you gotta give me half of your kill. What? Why don't we just all help you build a house? Then you got your house and we can all hunt together. Okay, that's how it is. If one person had 2,000 logs and we knew that the other people needed three logs to survive for the winter. But I refuse to give anybody any of those logs. No, 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 you're, you're going to freeze. Logic would dictate that we kick down the door and take those logs, right? But that's a crime in our society now. I think we're getting to the point where all of these structures that people see as, as, as legal and just are going to be challenged and say, what are they based upon, right? Who, who put them into power? Who put them here, right? And I think for me, I draw a lot from the, the revolutionary aspect of my ancestors. Many of them never surrendered to the Spaniards. Many of them simply moved deeper into the Amazon or moved into the highlands. And some of them don't even recognize the Peruvian government, right? They lived there forever and they have pyramids just like you see in Egypt. They're smaller, but there are more of them. And what's interesting about Peru is that we actually mummified people about 1500 years before the Egyptians. However, I will give the Egyptians credit, their process is much more complicated in terms of removing internal organs because from what I understand of the, um, the Egyptian religion at the time, which now we consider mythology, but I tell people all the time, today's religion is tomorrow's mythology. So the, the recognition of them saying, oh man, this is a rejuvenation. When the gods come back, they will rejuvenate a human being. So we have to store the most vital organs that you have because they can actually be put into a machine and rejuvenated and we can remake you. Whereas the indigenous people that live in, in where I'm from, they used to mummify their people in a fetal position because they believed in their heart of hearts that they would be reborn into another dimension. So I just wanna tell my ancestors, or my descendants that are watching me from some other dimension 
or people watching me from another dimension a thousand years in the future where they take some little rusty chip and they say, oh man, look, I found one. It's from 2023, you know what I mean? Oh wow, this is what was going on in the world. I want you guys to realize, man, that we live real lives, that we fought against the things that we thought were wrong and that only a slave is afraid to ask questions, right? And if you find yourself in a society where you can't ask anything, or you can't question anything, then you have a yoke around your neck that you don't even realize is there, you know? And now, now you've taken the first step into a much larger world. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel like I'm not even on the podcast. I think <laughs> that's your joke. Like, I feel like we're just watching you and like, this I is answer, so- I tell you, I answer all questions and I give full answers. I don't, I told you, you could ask me tough stuff. And that was critical that you did this back in the day. And, that, and I have no, answered. no, that was so <laughs> special. That was so special. That was incredible. I think, I mean, this is going to pop off. I'm, I can't, yeah, I can't thank you enough. Michael, too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This means so much to both of us. Thank you very I, much. I, I will say just like being Palestinian and having my family, my extended family and my friends in Gaza right now, obviously like this moment has been apocalyptic and life I feel like is irreversibly changed for me. I don't know if I'll ever find joy in anything ever again for as long as I live. But listening to you speak, I kind of forgot about everything for just like an hour and a half. So thank you. It was very therapeutic. Well, sister, you know, I, I, I've met with a lot of organizations here in New York, but one of them that I've been connected with for a long time is called Existence is Resistance. And I just remind you, sister, that your existence is a form of resistance. They need to wipe out all of you to win. And you guys, you just need to have one survive to win. And your people yeah. will survive. And through the long winter, we will make it. And I, I know that. I firmly believe that. And it's not just because I can see the future. You know, it's just because <laughs> Not good, not just because of the ayahuasca, right? No, no, it's not the ayahuasca. I've never taken that. I didn't need that to talk to them. There's a difference between hope and working towards something. Hope is actually inactive. It's it's the idea that you're praying for something, but you're not working for it. Whereas saying, okay, I'm actively moving towards this. So I'm doing things to wake people up, right? I'm 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 either I'm gonna have a family or I'm gonna teach other people's families what this was like. You know, I, 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 maybe the, the, the limbs, right? The, the, the limbs of people are missing, just like people cut off the, the, the limbs of trees, but the tree survives. The roots are strong and they're deep in the earth, right? And that's not a metaphor, it's the truth. They're deep in the earth. And those people that have suffered the most, they will be recognized. Their suffering will be recognized and it will not be swept under the rug the way other people's suffering and pain has been swept under the rug, the way Armenians' suffering has been swept under the rug, the way so many people were stuck in that Warsaw ghetto and left there to die, and jubilantly by the imperial powers. That's what we can't forget. They are, they are an indictment to themselves, sister. They are, they're the ones that are documenting their own war crimes every day, talking about killing people, killing little girls, and all this stuff. They're the ones that indicted themselves. So I, much like the police in this country don't need to work anymore, they just go online and see people confessing crimes left and right and telling drugs, waving guns. We see the same thing. I saw someone today shoot 
a missile, like a like a like a rocket propelled missile into a bunch of homes. There was no target. The guy was smiling and laughing. These things will be absorbed. They will be recognized because they cannot live in its existence. There's a there's an ancient understanding. It's a it's a book called Banality of Evil, right? It's a, it's a it's a great idea. Also, the idea that evil has to disguise itself as good because whenever evil comes out of its shell in the world, it's automatically confronted like a proton and an electron. Oh, you did something wicked? No, no, we have to confront you, right? And that's the thing about real people. Those people that watched Jeffrey Epstein fly these kids in and out at the airport, they didn't say nothing. But if you come to the poorest neighborhood here, or you go to the poorest neighborhood in Gaza, and you say, there's some sicko who lives on the third floor, and he's been hurting kids. He's been selling. Oh, they'll children. go fuck him up. And no, no, no. It's 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 we're doing street justice, right? Yeah. That's how people's supposed to be, man. That's how people's supposed to be. Not pay two million dollars to an attorney so you can keep raping children and doing horrible things. I think I think that's the part. And and to your point earlier to bring it all the way around, yeah, it's weird when when the people of Gaza themselves have canceled Christmas for other people. To say, oh man, we're we're just gonna move ahead with everything and forget the actual story of Jesus. You know, he he was a man born in a manger, right? His his story is one of a person who grows up in the shadow of an empire. And I think one of the things that always bothered me about Christianity and the religion that a lot of my family was a part of is that they look down on other faiths in weird ways. And I remind them that. Time is the great equalizer of all things. And if they were to look at ancient Egypt and say, look at these people, they actually prayed to a, a man with the head of a crocodile or the head of a falcon. And they really thought that that was going to bring them life to their sick child. That's absurd. And, and I say, wow, why don't you have a moment of an ego check and look at yourself? You actually prayed to this guy. They're going to say in the future, 4,000 years from now, that was 4,000 years ago. If humanity can even make it 4,000 years from now, the people will probably say, look, they prayed to this dead guy nailed to a piece of wood. And the saddest thing is that they couldn't even listen to the most basic thing that he said. And that was treat other people the way you want to be treated. One of the things that bothers me most about Christianity is all the Zionism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that seems like a good place to end. Thank you so much, Tech. You're truly one of my idols, and it's such an honor to be able to be same, in same. conversation with you. Peace. Peace, bro. Thank, Thank you so much. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go check out our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. And look for us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have as good a day as you can. Thank you. I look forward to coming back on the program whenever you guys. Oh, oh. anytime. It's an open invitation. Yeah. You can, you can be the third co-host if you want. Yeah. You can just have the show. Yeah. We